Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. And we just looked at all that and we're like, man, that's a lot of, that's a lot of, uh, of wind behind, behind our backs on this idea. And so we, we spun out this company Murmur. And the idea behind Murmur, the purpose of Murmur is to make work wonderful. And the way we think we do that is by helping teams make decisions and agreements collectively, collaboratively with consent, uh, and even being able to do that, you know, asynchronously without a meeting. So you can think about it as the rails for the trains that are different experiments and agreements and decisions that we need to make. Uh, now we can see them, we can track them, we can share them, they're transparent, we can see why we did what we did. Uh, we can borrow someone else's great agreement about a vacation policy or a hiring process and put it to work in our own team or our own organization. So we wanted to kind of create that ecosystem. And now we're, you know, pushing up on two years since we since we started that. And we've we've learned a lot about what's easy and what's hard about building software for things that are very complex and very human. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Aaron, welcome to the Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Yeah, thanks for having me back. It is my pleasure. So you're here for a second time, which to me, anytime we have somebody back for a second time, it's because the first interview was awesome. So no pressure at all. Um, <laughs> but, you know, we had you here when you wrote this book called Brave New Work, which was all about sort of thinking about the future of work and designing organizations for the future of work. So I thought I would start with a fitting question, and that is, what was the very first job that you ever had? And how did mm. that influence where you've ended up and what you've ended up doing with your life and career? Yeah, well, I uh, I have the honor of holding many, many, many terrible hourly jobs in my I teens and early 20s. And the first one was a busboy at 15. So I was uh, a busboy at Ruby Tuesdays and, uh, you know, taking down the salad bar at midnight, all that stuff. So even before I could drive, yeah, <laughs> cleaning up food. And honestly, all those hourly jobs, they affected me quite deeply, actually, because I already had a sense, even at that age, that I had ideas about what we could do differently and, and how we could, you know, run, run the business in, in ways that might serve the customers better or, or, or innovate in some way. Uh, and none of that was welcome at all. So it, you know, I was, I was basically a machine to them, a robot. Uh, and so 
um, I think I started to have a chip on my shoulder pretty early on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I mean, food service is such a humbling experience. I mean, shit, I worked at McDonald's, you know, yes. you talk about the most humbling experience. And I think that to me, the big takeaway was just how privileged of a circumstance that I was coming from compared to a lot of the people who work there. It made me, you know, sort of appreciate them. I mean, I'm curious, like, what are, what are the lessons in, in social dynamics you took away from being in a place like that? Cause I'm guessing like, you know, you go into Ruby Tuesdays, you know, in the middle of the afternoon, you'll be served sometimes by like a 60 year old woman. <laughs> yeah, no, for sure. I mean, I, I think the, it, the reality is that hourly work attracts a really weird cross section of society. Some people that are upwardly mobile, some people that are, you know, going back to work or finding something else or something part time, some people that just, you know, haven't figured out exactly what they want to do or how to or how to do it. Um, there were there were a lot of uh, a lot of hopes and dreams in a place like that. Um, and and in, in a way, it does form kind of a little bit of a group identity. I had I had a lot of good friends that I, I worked with in those settings, but I also had people that I just really didn't understand. And, and frankly, people that I didn't feel were qualified to manage me uh, in those settings because they had kind of Peter principled into that location and that slot. And and I was a, a guy who just needed, you know, 10 bucks an hour, a couple hours after school. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You you talked about this idea of upward mobility, and I mean, I, I I mean, I know I kind of know your background from you telling me a little bit about what your parents did for work last time. I mean, I'm the son of a college professor. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, I think you and I are born into circumstances where upward mobility is pretty much a guarantee as long as we take the opportunity that's given to us and do something with it. But when you look at society at large, do you think that we're designing a society? Because you know, we can talk about organizational level design all we want. But if you don't design a society where you, you know, maximize outcomes for everybody and yeah. don't act entirely in self-interest, like, how does that work? I mean, like from your perspective, from seeing this, you know, from the perspective of what you've learned from organizational design, can we take these ideas and, you know, how, how do we create a society that where upward mobility is more, you know, of a meritocracy? Yeah, I mean, I completely agree. I think it's it's quite significantly broken. And I think that one of the weird things about being a parent right now, I have a nine year old son now, um, is just noticing that like, I don't, I don't feel necessarily that the world is going to be a better or more optimal place in the future for him, like I did when I was hanging around in the 80s. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was sort of just written on the wall in the 80s that like, if you work hard and, and, you know, kind of apply yourself, and, and, and you kind of, you know, live in the right place, man, you are, you are set to go. And now it feels like that a lot of those social contracts have been broken or disrupted. Um, in part, because I think we, we really have seen the economy shift in terms of what it rewards. And, and also because I think we've seen that some parts of the game are, are rigged to benefit certain people, people that look a certain way or have certain things. Um, and it's not, it's not working well at all. So I do think from an org design standpoint, um, you just, you can, it's turtles all the way down, right? It's fractals. And so the society that we live in, the, the way that it runs, uh, the way that we choose to operate in a, you know, capitalist socialist economy, like all those things really matter. And unfortunately, unlike in an organization where you can do a lot of parallel experimentation and, and use your values and your principles to drive outcomes as a founder, uh, as a member in, in a much bigger society that runs on a government that was designed 200 years ago, uh, it's way, way harder to exact that kind of change. So I, I actually spent a lot of time thinking about and being frustrated by that. 
So you mentioned that you have uh, a nine-year-old son. So two, two questions. When you were growing up, what was the narrative around your house about education and making your way in the world? And what is it going to be, do you think, you know, when your son is at uh, that point in his life where you have to give him guidance about how to make his way in the world and think about the future of his education? Yeah. I mean, in some ways, I think I was uh, I was part of a transitionary generation, or at least I played that role in my family because my parents both went to school. My, you know, my dad has a degree from UVA. My mom has a master's degree in, in special education. Like they were definitely people that believed in in, in liberal education. Um, and the message, the narrative from them was basically like, you need to do well in school so that you unlock opportunities and you need to learn how to learn so that you can kind of do whatever you want to do. And they exposed me to a lot of different um, extracurricular activities and ideas. And, and just th- their theory was like, throw everything with the kitchen sink at this kid and see what sticks um, and, and make sure that you, you know, bring home a good report card. Um, but over the course of my educational history with them, I became more and more resistant to the bureaucracy and the ridiculousness of, of modern education, which is basically designed to, uh, you know, to uh, educate people who will be the children of farmers um, and work on a factory line, maybe as, as we transition to, to city states. Um, and so I just, I really felt, and, and I know we were talking about Seth, uh, Seth Godin before this podcast, but yeah. his view of education is very much my view um, that, it, that it is a, a fundamentally broken system. So I started to kind of tune into that and resist that. And by the time I was in high school, I was basically doing, you know, the minimum to get by so that I could focus on what I actually cared about yeah. and, and really lean into that. And then ultimately, I dropped out of college three credits shy of a psychology degree to start my first business. Um, and here we are, you know, five businesses later. So I was I was very much kind of bucking the message and the trend that was there. And ultimately what was great is that my parents really supported me in that. Mm-hmm. As soon as they saw the results of my effort outside of the academic context, they were like, all right, you know, you, you can do whatever you want. And that was really nice. That, that, that support level. Now, when I look at my son, I mean, my wife and I talk openly about, you know, will he go to college? What will he want to pursue? How will he pursue it? Because the reality is the, the line in Goodwill hunting about, you got an education that you could have got for a dollar fifty and late fees at the public library. That's true, but just replace library with internet. I mean, what what can't you learn how to do? What can't you get close to with just some uh, some drive? And so I think a lot of what we focus on with him is not academic excellence, but actually uh, grit and and learning how to pursue something that you're passionate about and knowing that the rest will kind of take care of itself. Yeah. So. A couple of things, uh, you know, I've, I've had a couple of conversations with Seth about uh, education and <laughs> uh, this always comes up anytime I talk to, you know, of anybody course. who's a parent and anybody who I know is an educator. I've talked to Cal Newport about this. Uh, uh-huh. Every professor I've ever talked to, I always ask them this. Um, but he said parents are the ones who really are the ones that have the power to change it. But I don't think all of them, one, have the kind of platform that you do or are not as vocal. Uh, and so I would ask you a question that I realize there's no correct answer to but if you were tasked with redesigning the education system from the ground up let's say tomorrow you are the new secretary of education you get to fire everybody and your job is to redesign our entire education system from k through 12 through college what would you do yeah i i wish someone would uh would hand me this baton um you and me both 
Yeah, right. I mean, it would be such an exciting I mean, uh, Betsy DeVos would hate us, but who cares? Uh, yeah. Well, I mean, I hope she already does. Yeah. Um, <laughs> my my sense is that what we need to do is effectively two things. One, there's there's a little bit of a quadrant in my head about solving problems alone, solving problems together, creating new things alone and creating new things together. And that becomes kind of like the curriculum surface for what do we actually need to learn how to do? And I think those are the four things that we need to learn how to do. And the way that we need to learn how to do them is by looking at cross-functional or cross-disciplinary challenges that feel more like a story, a video game, an immersive experience, and less like math, science, reading, you know, et cetera. There are moments for learning that very like subject matter oriented material, but they are fleeting. It's much more interesting to learn what you need to know in order to accomplish what you want to accomplish or, you know, beat beat the aliens or whatever the case may be. And my wife and I both share a, a memory, which is when we were kids, we went to something called Young Ameritown, which is based here in Colorado. Um, and it's it's actually part of a bank's educational nonprofit. And what they do is every year, students from all around the state spend a week preparing and learning about money and the economy and jobs and how to be an adult in society. And then they go to this micro town that's on a floor of a building and it's a miniature town and they take on different jobs. People are elected mayor, people become doctors, people become lawyers, people become package delivery folks and food service folks. And they run this town for a whole day, uh, spending money, managing their, managing their accounts, uh, you know, making everything happen. And I got to tell you, you think back on something like that so fondly because you learned an enormous amount about money and the economy and yourself, but also you had a lot of fun and it felt like this very immersive experience. So as I see my kid play with, you know, Legend of Zelda Breath of the Wild, I'm thinking he, he has an encyclopedic knowledge of the game. There's a missing piece here in education where we're like, all right, back to reading this paragraph in social studies about an event no one cares about. Instead of thinking about how do we put these kids in situations where they have to solve problems and create new things together. And in order to do that, they need to learn all the things that they need to learn. That's that's what I would try to bring to the table. Yeah. Well, I want to bring back a clip from a conversation I had with Dan Pink uh, about sort of what drives motivation and then really looking at the education system. Take a look. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step -step guidance to suggested plugins, 
Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Worried you'll need to babysit your robot vacuum? Think again. Meet Eufy X10 Pro Omni Robot Vacuum with AI-powered navigation to recognize and avoid over 100 objects. It's the winner of five Best of CES awards. And Digital Trend says it boasts almost all the same features as robot vacuums that cost twice as much. Want to know more? Go to eufy.com. That's E-U-F-Y.com. And discover X10 Pro Omni, the best-in-class all-in-one robot vacuum for only $799. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Let's talk about aging. It's inevitable, right? But what if I told you there's a new way to age led by Solgar Cellular Nutrition? They believe, and I do too, that you can transform the way you age cell by cell with the power of cellular nutrition. As we age, our cellular function declines. Your regular multivitamins and minerals might not be enough to combat these age-related declines, and that's where Solgar Cellular Nutrition comes in. It's formulated with targeted cellular nutrients that work with your body's natural processes deep inside your cells to help you fight cellular decline and promote cell health across three benefit areas. It supports cell energy, repair, and vitality, muscle strength, and even glutathione production to help protect cells. So let's own our healthy aging narrative. Visit CellularNutrition.Solgar.com to learn more. Again, that's CellularNutrition.Solgar.com to learn more. Solgar Cellular Nutrition. We go cell deep. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. What, you, what you're incentivized to do is become a narrow and narrow spec. And so as a consequence, the undergraduate education that's offered is very rarely cross-disciplinary. And yet when these young men and women go out into the world, all of the problems and issues they confront are inherently multidisciplinary. I've never gone out into the world and anything that I've done in my 50 plus years on this planet and, and or let's say my 25 years in the workplace, I've never had a problem come to me and say, hello, Dan, I'm an English problem. I'm a math problem. I'm a social studies problem. You know, it comes to me. It's like, this is a big honking problem. It's not clearly uh-huh. stated. It doesn't have a single right answer. What do you make of that? I mean, he's dead on. I think this is something I talked about at length in Brave New Work, but the idea that complicated problems are fewer and fewer right now and complex problems are, are all over the place. There's a lot more intractable, interesting, social, multidisciplinary problems than ever before, or at least we're noticing them more maybe than we did before. And um, and yeah, I, I think he's absolutely right. It, it requires a completely different approach. And instead, we're teaching kids to like 
study for a test they'll never have when they don't know how to write an email mm-hmm. and learn how to do calculations that unless they're going to, you know, solve the solve the world equation, they're never going to use again. Yeah. Um, instead of actually dialing into like, how do you manage conflict with another human being? Mm-hmm. How do you manage your checkbook? How do you know what your credit score is? There's a million things we don't teach that you actually need. And most of what we teach, you really don't. It's funny you say that. Um, I co-host this weekly segment with my best friend, Gareth, called The Unmistakable Creativity Hour. And we were talking about learning. And uh, we talked about memorization. So you, I, I'm sure you, you probably had this experience. You remember when you take geography when you're a kid yes. and you have to memorize the capitals of like the states and the cities. So, absolutely. Uh, you know, do you remember the capitals of like all 50 states? If I asked you just at random what one of them was, like, do you know what the capital of Iowa is? Uh Sioux City, Iowa City, something like that. I could probably do like 40 of them. <laughs> okay. That's pretty good. So we were, you know, it's it's funny because I lived in Texas, all right? And I didn't know, I couldn't remember that the, the capital was Austin. Right. And right. I lived in Colorado for two years. I had no, I, the entire time until one day I dropped a friend off in Denver. I was like, Denver's the capital, <laughs> the capital of Colorado? <laughs> <laughs> like, what the hell? But it just goes to show that this sort of rote memorization is utterly useless. You know? Totally. Yeah, I mean, it's, again, like, it's rooted in a time. I think the biggest problem with, with our social systems is that they tend to be filled with organizational debt. And it's rooted in a time when there was no internet. There was no way to find out that information. And, and a basic knowledge of civics was important to participate in society. But, um, but yeah, nobody needs to know the capital of, of, uh, Iowa for a bunch of reasons. Um, but, but for starters, cause it's very findable. Mm-hmm. Well, speaking of systems, um, I think this will make a, a perfect segue into the things that you're working on now. So I wanted to revisit a clip from the conversation you and I had before. Take a listen. Sure. In nature, a lot of the systems I studied there, when they have high information, when there's a a ripe apple in the middle of the floor, the ants all converge on that apple, except for the fact that 5% or 10% hang back and continue to operate randomly looking for the next apple. And I think what is interesting about companies is we suck at that. So we, when we find something that works, we really put in all the roles and structures and regulations and processes and policies to try to keep that golden goose producing eggs. But we often forget that we have to keep looking across the fitness landscape for what's going to matter next. And so it's for every activity, for every process, for every function, for every product, there is that landscape and there has to be a conscious kind of bet setting going on. So let's talk about that. Um, because it sounds to me like what you're actually talking about there is being able to simultaneously do what's needed in the present while also considering what might happen in the future. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's effectively like a barbell investment strategy where you need some sure things and then some wild swings that, you know, might pay off. It's it's funny because my my dad, um, I mean, because he's a professor, he has a budget for uh, a new computer, and he was mm-hmm. looking at the new iMac yesterday, and he was you know like he- hesitating to do the memory upgrades and all this other stuff. I said, Dad, I'm, you know what? Don't think about what this computer is going to be useful for now. Think about how mm-hmm. you're going to use it a year down the road. I was like, you're about to have a grandchild, which means that thing is going to be filled with video and pictures. <laughs> okay, you and I both know that. I'm like, and. There are going to be new apps that come out that are more memory intensive. And if you skimp on it now, then you're going to have to go back and fix what you didn't do right this time. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
So let, let, let's talk about this in terms of, you know, sort of organizational workflow and, and organizational design. I mean, you know, you, you know, made this transition from, you know, what you were doing before uh, to something new called Murmur. So talk to me about, you know, what led to the thesis? Like what, what was it that prompted your, your sort of next chapter? Yeah. So oh, hang on. It looks like there's a massive truck driving by. Um, all right. I'll pick this up here. Um, the company and that was behind the book, Brave New Work, is called The Ready. And The Ready does consulting work with organizations big and small around the world, including people like the Fed and the CDC and Johnson & Johnson and Boeing and, you know, the list goes on. And, and it's great. I mean, it's really, it's really fun to get into businesses and play with removing that org debt and replacing it with better ways of working that, that really serve people. Um, however, there are issues with scale and there are issues with visibility. And so if you go into an environment and you're like, Hey, let's do experiments where we change the way we work and we'll do some, you know, safe to try, safe to fail stuff and, and scale what works and ditch what doesn't. That's great at a scale of a hundred people or 500 people or a thousand people. Um, but at 80,000 people, there's no way to deploy that. We don't have the staff. They don't have the, the budget. Like the capacity is not there. And even in the case of a few hundred people experimenting with their way of working and really making agreements to change things, to try things. Um, how do you, how do you keep track of all that? And how do you actually scale what works when it really comes down to it? And so we felt that pressure for a long time. We've always had kind of had this belief that organizations have code just like computers do. And there's a GitHub where you can, you know, share, share and fork and, and borrow and, and iterate on, on code for software. But there's no GitHub for, for agreements at work, for ways of working, for working agreements. And so we had a we had our eye on that for a long time. And then suddenly during the pandemic, I noticed that there were four plus billion people that had moved to remote work overnight and really had to like evaluate and possibly change the way they work and make decisions and allocate resources and collaborate. And we also had a great resignation underway. People were kind of fed up with the status quo of work. And we had a resurgence in the DEI movement at work. And we had this Web3 thing going on, with which was really about an ownership economy and a different way of building organizations and, and corporations. And we just looked at all that and we're like, man, that's a lot of that's a lot of uh, of wind behind behind our backs on this idea. And so we we spun out this company Murmur. And the idea from behind Murmur, the purpose of Murmur is to make work wonderful. And the way we think we do that is by helping teams make decisions and agreements collectively, collaboratively with consent, uh, and even being able to do that, you know, asynchronously without a meeting. So you can think about it as the rails for the trains that are different experiments and agreements and decisions that we need to make. Uh, now we can see them, we can track them, we can share them, they're transparent, we can see why we did what we did. Uh, we can borrow someone else's great agreement about a vacation policy or a hiring process, and put it to work in our own team or our own organization. So we wanted to kind of create that ecosystem and now we're, you know, pushing up on two years since we, since we started that. And we've, we've learned a lot about what's easy and what's hard about building software for things that are very complex and very human. Yeah. Well, speaking of, uh, sort of pandemic and, and how it changed work, uh, you know, I think that what's funny is this is one of the teasers that I, I, you know, pulled from your old conversation. In fact, it was the, the actual opening that we used two-year-old <laughs> conversation, which I think will sort of frame, you know, how we talk about Murmur perfectly. You know, you said the following about meetings. Take a listen. So if we have 
most of our day spent in meetings, first of all, we're not doing the work unless the work is happening in the meeting, which is rare. And the meetings themselves are often trying to comply, control, route, manage that work in a way that slows it down. And so it's about, oh, I got to wait for this meeting to get permission. I got to wait for this meeting to do a review with my boss to pitch what's going on. I have to do a lot of meetings to prepare for meetings because God forbid I look vulnerable or stupid or I don't know the answer in a meeting. So I'm going to have five meetings to prepare for the meeting with my boss where I'm just supposed to show him work in progress. And I see this stuff all the time. I'm not exaggerating at all. I have I had a client a couple of years ago where the average time in meetings per week for the executive team was 45 hours a week. And so 45 hours a week. Yeah, that was through lunch every day. And it was all this politicking and one-on-oneing and group meetings that were not properly facilitated, et cetera. So one of the things that we advocate for is really a meeting moratorium, right? Kill all the meetings, figure out where it hurts. What are you missing that you don't have? And then slowly rebuild that with consent from everyone involved and with deliberate kind of practice. So if we're going to rebuild Monday's status meeting, let's build the best damn status meeting in existence. What are the, what do people know out there? What are the emergent practices? What are the best agile teams in the world doing? And let's step into those practices before we add 15 other things, because (laughs) one meeting held well will replace five meetings held terribly. So let's talk about murmur in the context of what you just said there, because I think anybody listening to this was like, yeah, uh, <laughs> like I, I can tell you this. I'm literally the most impatient person in the world when it comes to meetings. And the beauty of running your own company is I can tell people, by the way, my attention span is done. So get to the point. Um, mm-hmm. And I remember yesterday I had a meeting with, you know, our ad sales team at ACAST and I created an agenda. I said, these are the things I want to cover. And after this, we're done. There's nothing else to talk about. And even, you know, when I had a team member, I was like, this is what we're going to do on Monday. I'm like, I want to know, you know, what have you done since I last spoke to you? What do you need help with? And what are you going to do next? And I don't want to talk about anything else. And yet, you know, meetings still somehow go off the rails. Like I, I hate meetings with a passion. (laughs) Like I will avoid them at all costs. And to your point, sometimes I don't even know why we're having a meeting. So let's, let's talk about how something like Murmur can help us you know, rewrite this whole idea of look, meetings, I think are a great place to start um, because Absolutely. everybody fucking hates meetings. Well, and also they're a microcosm of the enterprise. So like, if you want to know what your company and your culture is like, just go to a meeting um, because everything is happening right there. It's yeah. like a little micro version of it. And 90% uh, of them are unnecessary. Yeah. Oh, but most of them are, I mean, for starters, one of the things that we, that we talk a lot about at the ready is that there are, there's an obsession with like, let's have a pre-planned agenda. But actually what's missing is not that there's many meeting types that we host that don't have a pre-planned agenda. What they have is a structure and a type. And so what type of meeting is this and what is the structure that goes with that is critically important. And for the vast majority of meetings in the world, there just isn't either of those things. So when you do go to like a proper agile retrospective, you're at a retrospective meeting and there is a structure. We're going to collect these insights, then we're going to group them, then we're going to talk about them, then we're going to create actions. That's what we do in this type of meeting. We don't do other stuff. And and there are actually a variety of different meeting types that are valuable if you choose to run a synchronous organization. However, you can also choose to run an asynchronous organization with members all around the world where a meeting is not the most convenient way to do that coordination. And when you choose to do that or when you choose to reduce the number of meetings that you have 
to to try to make things more manageable and get more deep work done to Cal's point, um, you need a way to move into a more asynchronous way of operating. And that's where something like Murmur comes in, because the vast majority of meetings that happen in our experience are because people need a decision to be made or they need permission to do something. And they're seeking that through a face to face interaction that is live and synchronous. And that means they might be waiting one, two, three, four weeks for that audience with whoever has power in order to make that decision or get that answer or whatever the case may be. It's incredibly wasteful. Mm -hmm. And so with Murmur, the idea is like, don't ever have a meeting about a decision again, unless you've already tried to make that decision asynchronously and failed. Yeah. And so the idea is, you know, you instead of waiting three weeks for a meeting, draft up a little proposal in Murmur. I propose that we have summer Fridays in August. Send it out to the people that have decision rights on that decision, the leadership team, whatever the case may be, um, and let them go through a structured asynchronous decision process that basically has three parts. One, the first part is understand, which is questions and answers. The second part is improve, which is suggestions and edits. And the third part is decide, which is are, do we consent or do we object? Mm-hmm. Um, you can do that. And, and the average we find is people spend somewhere between like five and 15 minutes on the entire decision across three different bites yeah. uh, instead of an hour in that dumb meeting. Mm-hmm. Um, so we, we, we find it both saves time and also uh, accelerates things, even though in the moment it can feel like, oh, I'm going through this multi-step asynchronous process. Isn't this slower or less efficient? Mm-hmm. The answer is no, it's actually, it's better in both directions. Yeah. Well, so one thing I, w- I want to talk about is the volume of information that you, it, you know, sort of include in an asynchronous message. Cause I remember oh, yeah. trying to use something, yeah, a tool called zip message where I had sure. like a, a six minute, you know, a video explanation of something. And I got, you know, one of my team members was like, this just, you know, my brain is fried from trying to watch this. <laughs> this is too much for my brain. And I kind of, I thought it through. And at first I was like, why are you so slow? Why can't you process this? Like now we can mm. avoid 30 minutes. And then I kind of thought, okay, maybe she's right. Maybe there was too much in that. Um, mm-hmm. So talk to me about that. I mean, I, I'm guessing that she was actually the person who was right there. Um, then mm. I kind of overloaded it. And, I'm, you know, so you know, how do you, you know, use sort of what Tiago Forte might call intermediate packets like that are more digestible yeah. in this process? Because I think she was right. Like, you know, it's like yeah. a seven minute, like, you know, video diatribe of, you know, a bunch of bullshit, I think could be very like that probably was like, oh, my God, you know. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Worried you'll need to babysit your robot vacuum? Think again. Meet Eufy X10 Pro Omni Robot Vacuum with AI-powered navigation to recognize and avoid over 100 objects. It's the winner of five Best of CES awards. And Digital Trends says it boasts almost all the same features as robot vacuums that cost twice as much. Want to know more? Go to eufy.com, that's E-U-F-Y.com, and discover X10 Pro Omni, the best-in-class all-in-one robot vacuum for only $799. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, Furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. 
Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Marketers and business owners, you've been pining after a certain someone. Your job's on the line. You're desperate for them to like you back. Here's a word of advice from me. Talking is hot. Just you and them, finally alone, like us two right now. Maybe under the duvet, headphones on, one-on-one. Podcast advertising is proven to be one of the best ways to catch their attention. So surprise them while they're tuned in, while the moment's right. Say a line or two that really gets them going. Next time, if you want to win over your special someone and build some brand love, experiment with something new, just focus on your voice. Advertise on more than 100,000 podcast shows with Acast. Head to go.acast.com slash closer to get started. Let's talk about aging. It's inevitable, right? But what if I told you there's a new way to age led by Solgar Cellular Nutrition? They believe, and I do too, that you can transform the way you age cell by cell with the power of cellular nutrition. As we age, our cellular function declines. Your regular multivitamins and minerals might not be enough to combat these age-related declines, and that's where Solgar Cellular Nutrition comes in. It's formulated with targeted cellular nutrients that work with your body's natural processes deep inside your cells to help you fight cellular decline and promote cell health across three benefit areas. It supports cell energy, repair, and vitality, muscle strength, and even glutathione production to help protect cells. So let's own our healthy aging narrative. Visit CellularNutrition.Solgar.com to learn more. Again, that's CellularNutrition.Solgar.com to learn more. Solgar Cellular Nutrition. We go cell deep. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Well, I think what smart people tend to do is they are working on multiple levels at the same time. And when they do figure something out or finally have conviction, they have a lot to share. Yeah. And a lot of that is context and background and connections, et cetera. But there's all, what, all, what is also true is that uh, someone really smart once said, if I had more time, I would have written a shorter letter. Uh-huh. And I really do believe that when you understand something really, really well and really deeply, you can actually summarize it quite, you know, lean and, and quite, uh, excuse me, you can actually summarize it quite quickly. And, and the idea here is that we, we talk about atomic agreements a lot at Murmur, where the idea is how do we take four or five things that ultimately are going to be stitched together and are going to be, you know, combinatory and process them one at a time. Mm-hmm. And what I see with a lot of DAOs happening actually lately is they will start to put together like a constitution of how they work and they'll propose one 6,000 word proposal and be like, vote on it. Yes or no. <laughs> And it's just, you're just cramming too much into the pipe, right? And and actually, when we get things more modular, we benefit from the specificity, from the focus, from the clarity. And then when we do stitch them together, they create superstructures that are wonderful. And those meta agreements, those meta spaces are awesome. But I don't recommend that somebody try to process something that's longer than, I don't know, two thirds of a page mm-hmm. at any given time, like yeah. one one piece of the puzzle at a time here. 
Okay. Let's talk. Let's use a very concrete example um, so that I, you know, I, I can see how this might apply to my own life. So right now, sure. um, you know, we've been airing this new podcast, this podcast series of old episodes called the Wisdom Series. And one of the things people will probably have heard it by the time they hear this conversation uh, we're doing is we're basically creating this sort of NPR style uh, episode where we weave together a bunch of old clips, you know, and it's basically called the hero's journey to becoming wise, where we, you know, overlay old content from the podcast and different clips using that hero's journey structure. Um, that sounds cool. Yeah. I'll send it to you when it's done. It will be very cool. Um, and the thing is that the first thing I did was I knew that the hardest part was going to be thinking through the structure. So I imported all my transcripts into mem, which is like my, you know, note-taking bible at this point like it is you know my second brain and the coolest thing ever like i'm i told you know i mean i've said to the product team i'm basically the you know unofficial spokesperson for the cult of mem i mean i have a youtube channel where i do <laughs> tutorials for these for for this software because it's been invaluable to me because it's the closest thing i've found to a true second brain where everything i need is aggregated into one tool um nice. you know and you know it takes us into a whole conversation about networked thinking um but you know, the thing is that, of course, this episode has a lot of moving parts um, because I have to, you know, create the narrative structure. And that's what I used Mem for because I was like, OK, if I do this in this script, it's going to be really slow. Let me figure out what I want the actual structure for the writing to be first, because I can do that a thousand times faster in writing. And that also requires coordination with my sound engineer. Um, who, right. you know, adds in music to sections who, you know, really gives it the, the tone that we're trying to get to, you know, and that requires, you know, descript, you know, conversations with Slack. Yeah. So let's say we brought you in and said, all right, Aaron, redesign this process for us um, using what you talk about. Like, how can we do this asynchronously in a way that is not, you know, hey, I'm checking Slack in the morning to see, you know, if Josh in South Africa has done this and blah, 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 blah. So Give me your, your sort of if you were, you know, leading this project and you're like, all right, Srini, do your one thing that you only do well, which is writing the narrative and choosing the <laughs> clips and let me take over managing the project. How would you do it? Yeah, well, I mean, the first thing to say is that Murmur's goal is not necessarily to eliminate all of that interaction. Mm -hmm. uh, we we have lots of occasions to slack with each other or have conversations or do work together that uh, that we enjoy. Those are fine. But when it comes to any decision that needs to be made by more than one person or any commitment that needs to happen about how something will be done and that we want to constrain behavior. That's where murmur would come in. So I think the first thing I would ask is like, does this process by which you do this, is this documented somewhere? And then you would say, Oh, you know, it is, or it isn't. And if it isn't, we might start there. And if it was, I'd say, how's it going? <laughs> how's it serving you? Are people showing up to that and doing it the way we expect? And if the answer is it's going perfectly, then we would move on to the next tension. But if we said, Oh, well, actually, this part's unclear and this role is unclear and we're not sure who can decide this or that we would make micro proposals for those, for those specific issues. So we'd okay. start with, here's a proposal for the process. Here's a proposal for the roles that we each play in that process. Mm -hmm. And let's all consent and agree to that. And let's set an expiration date where we review how it's going uh, in the future so that we're actually iterating and moving towards a better and better way of producing this show. Okay. So stop there because um, I want to talk about process in a bit more detail. Yes. So my friend Gareth runs a company called Gap Consulting where he helps people um, and companies. Fold t-shirts? Uh, no, no. <laughs> yeah. Fold t-shirts. Yeah. yeah. Um, so <laughs> they basically build complex automations to automate uh -huh. repetitive tasks. And his biggest challenge you're talking like huge, huge companies like Disney level, you know, Showtime. Every time he gets a client, 
the biggest issue he runs into is the fact that they don't even know their own damn process. Yep. Um, and so, you, and he said, how can I automate a process if you don't have one? And the, <laughs> the funny thing is like, you know, even when he builds, you know, things that are automated for me, he said, I promise you, if you fuck something up, it's on you, not because of the process I built, it's human error. And he's right. always right. Um, and it just got me thinking like our podcast workflow, like, you know, today was the first time, like I normally would not have emailed you and I probably actually sent you the details using our standard workflow, which is completely sure. automated. Um, but I'd never thought to document it because we do these narrative episodes like once in a blue moon, but this is the first time I'd ever thought we should actually have a re like a, a documented process for this. Um, but I want you to, to emphasize the importance of this to people because i have hammered people on this whether mm. it's content creators i was like process you know is mind-numbing victor chang talks about this in extreme revenue growth he was like when he goes in to consult with a company and take them from a million to 25 million in revenue the first thing he has them do is document the processes for every task and he's like yep. it's boring as shit there's a really cool company called scribe how uh, or scribe that literally lets you just do screen by screen um, captures to to document process, uh, but it, I want you to to really emphasize why this is so important because I don't think people realize how much time they waste reinventing the wheel for shit they've done a thousand times because their process is not documented. Yeah, well, I mean, the thing we always talk about at at Murmur is if it's worth arguing about or explaining, it's worth writing down. And the reason for that is simple. You can't actually improve something methodically and at scale with multiple people without clarity about what the hell it is. Yeah. And so even though you can kind of socially and emergently find your way to a better path, if somebody quits or somebody leaves or a new member joins the team or somebody changes their role, that all gets borked. Mm-hmm. And if you actually have crisp, clear agreements about this is how we do things, this is what what the stop points are, this is how we make these decisions, this is the roles that are at play here, it becomes incredibly resilient, number one. So it's very easy to like slot somebody out and somebody into a role and all the expectations and all the connection points are there. And it becomes really easy to improve because now you can stop two months in and say, hey, look at this thing. A, are we doing it? And that's what we call follow through. Are we doing what we said we'd do, which is a huge gap for most teams. And then B, is it serving us? Is it going well? What's our NPS on the way we're doing this? And just those two questions can't be asked if you don't have clarity on what that process is. So I strongly agree with with that quote. Yeah. Well, let's continue with this podcast example. So, you know, we agree that we will document the process for these narrative episodes going forward now that we know how to do it. it it's funny because we've done it a few times and the first few steps are the same every time. Sure. Um, but then comes this sort of dynamic part, right, where we don't know what our decisions are going to be. So the example I'll give you is Josh goes in and he picks different tracks, uh, you know, where we're going to use music. And he'll give me, you know, two samples of things. He'll give me his feedback on, you know, what could be better. I, I'm really fortunate because I can give him a ridiculous answer. Like, I don't know, bring the audience to tears and he'll know exactly how to do that, <laughs> which is why I love him. Like, you know, he's a godsend. Like the guy can do what a team of 50 people at NPR does. He's like, you write the story. He's like, I'll take care of the sound design. Um, Amazing. But, you know, that's the part that is very back and forth. So, you know, let's say, for example, he sends me, we've done the introduction, right, to sort of this hero's journey uh, episode where we've kind of said, okay, here are four different potential pieces of music you could do. So talk about how we would, you know, think through this if you were in charge. Yeah, well, I mean, for starters, I I think it's worth pointing out that what you're doing is making art 
And, and, you know, it's not called the unmistakable robot. Um, <laughs> I, I think creativity is real and I think, you know, creative collision and, and dialogue is important. So Murmur's goal is not to eliminate that. Um, it may well be that a piece of the process is these two people go back and forth and, and make creative decisions together. Um, and, and maybe we have to document what happens if they disagree, but we don't necessarily have to automate the entire set of interactions. For one thing, it, it probably wouldn't make a better piece of art. And for another thing, I don't know that it'd be that enjoyable. Mm-hmm. To me, w- one of the things I kind of have a bit of pause about is when people are so anti-meeting and so pro-automation that they end up alone. Mm. Um, and I don't want to be alone. I actually like being at work with other people. I like hearing other people talk and think and feel and emote and, um, and I don't want to get rid of that. So th- I want to get rid of the nonsense. I want to get rid of the, you know, the bitching and the moaning and the debates and the bullshit that is like just in the way, but the really fruitful creative collaborations and collisions, those are, those are magic and I enjoy them and they make better work. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that that, that more or less describes mine and Josh's process process for this in a nutshell. Um, <laughs> nice. so, you know, I mean, I think in, in the wake of the pandemic, there's this sort of you know, what they call Zoom fatigue, which we've never even had that term before. But yeah. there's a grain of truth to that. You know, like, yeah, I mean, shit, look at what happened. I mean, Jeffrey Tubin, a longtime CS, CNN correspondent, loses his job for masturbating in a Zoom meeting. Like, I don't know if it, I don't know if that's if there's any more clear indication of the fact that meetings are, you know, this big issue. Um, so talk to me in, in a world of, you know, constant remote work where you know vr is around the corner and i still am convinced that we're like very very close to mass adoption and people don't believe this because they find the experience frustrating i've been in vr meetings and half the battle was trying to teach somebody how to use the damn software for sure but there was you know something about it that i was like yeah this really could actually create a very different meeting experience but um when you think about, you know, sort of the future of, you know, remote collaboration, I mean, how do we do this in a way that, you know, allows us as both organizations and individuals to make progress on the things that matter and accomplish our goals? Yeah. Well, a, a little bit back to your point about meetings. If we don't have clear meeting structures and we don't have clear roles and decision rights and responsibilities and structures around teams, et cetera we're going to need a lot more meetings than than we ought to have. And and usually when you see someone that's in eight hours of back-to-back meetings, they're either a therapist or they have a broken operating system yeah. at work. Mm-hmm. Um, and so so you really have to question, like, are, do we need to be doing these things live and synchronously? And then for the things where we do, I think the goal should be to have the best, highest fidelity, most supported experience possible yeah. What's interesting to me about most of the organizations that I've studied and, and I would I would consider the ready part of this group um, that work remotely, primarily, they still have uh, occasions every year where they get together in person mm-hmm. because they've realized that there's value in that kind of, you know, maximum fidelity communication. Um, and they have uh, really, really good tooling and really, really good habits about how they communicate and take notes and and become cultures of documentation, loom cultures, et cetera, where they can make the most of, of what they need to get across without necessarily bringing everyone together in real time. Mm. So at Murmur, for example, we, we have a, an agreement that is uh, a ritual, essentially. It's a norm that at the end of the day, if you have time, you just make a one minute loom of what did you figure out today? What did you learn? What did you try? What did you do? Anything that you think is interesting enough that it merits sharing. 
And, you know, one half to two thirds of the group will will do that on any given day. And that eliminates the need for like a stand up or for checking in on people or for asking the question. It, it's just happening organically and without a meeting. And if you want to watch it, you can. If you don't want to watch it, you don't have to. And so I think a lot of these systems, it, there's a question of push versus pull. Do we want to push communication, push information, push meetings on people? Or do we want to create pull resources where if I want to watch, I can. If I need to know, I can go look. If I'm curious, it's transparent. If I want to show up, I can show up. But otherwise, I can sort of do what's best for me and my role. There's no way to have that kind of a system with that level of trust if we don't have 100% clarity about what roles does Aaron hold, what are their purposes, what decision rights does Aaron have, and what's expected. Yeah. And then we can actually have a lot of those things, and we can kind of have our cake and eat it too. I, you know, If you're doing more than 10 hours a week of meetings in a system, unless there's very specific contextual circumstances... It, you probably can lean in harder on that stuff and and find a way to clear the decks. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I, I I can tell you, you know, when I do surveys of our email list, one problem comes up over and over again, and it's time. You really go, I don't have time to sit around and, and just think or have white space on my calendar. I'm like, one hundred percent. You know what? That's nonsense, Jeff. You know, uh, Jeff Weiner, the CEO of LinkedIn, mm-hmm. <laughs> creates white space on his calendar. Yeah, you know, and so I'm always baffled by. The fact that it, when people tell me they don't have time for something, like the, there are two things that come up for me. One is what Laura Vanderkam says. She's like, if you say you don't have time for something, then it's not a priority. Like you'd never say, I don't have time to feed my kids. Sure. You know, um, and, and then, you know, the other is that you're just not managing the time you do have well. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think I think there's a third possibility as well. I think it's definitely true that it, there's a question of priorities. I think anyone who's read 4000 Weeks mm-hmm. can really get into that. Yeah. Um, we had Oliver on our show recently and it was a blast talking about, you know, what really matters. Um, I do think that that there's a question of of using our time well and back to school. We don't really teach healthy personal productivity in school. Yeah. Uh, it's not it's not something that we that we prioritize as a culture. But the last possibility and the one that I'd like to point to just to, to give people a small break is if you don't have a lot of power in your organization, if you're not Jeff Weiner, if you're someone who works for someone that is an absolute taskmaster and a monster, um, it's very easy to end up inundated and overloaded with a bunch of bullshit work that serves a bureaucratic God <clears throat> that nobody fundamentally believes is important, but that just has to get done. Yeah. And I've seen that in systems time and time again, where people are essentially having their time wasted for them by the bureaucracy and they lack, you know, there, there are ways to make noise that certainly you can choose to quit or if you have the privilege to find another job, but there's a lot of situations where people feel pretty stuck and we have to help them walk back. All right. What can we do? What do you have control over? What experiment could you try? Who else can you align with to start to unwind this thing? Because it gets to be a pretty nasty ball of yarn, mm-hmm. uh, particularly in larger, you know, more legacy organizations. Yeah. I mean, I, I you know, it, it's one of those things that I, I run into over and over again. This is why I don't thrive in large structure organiza- organizations. Because, I mean, <laughs> yeah. you're basically what no, you're talking about where David Graeber calls bullshit jobs. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I yeah. love that book. Yeah. I mean, the, and I there's so book. many of those. And I, one of my favorite books of all time is Scott Belsky's Making Ideas Happen. Um, yeah. That is like my Bible so much so that I've templated the entire book in all my, you know, uh, project management tools. I use that system <laughs> for everything. And there's one huge thing that he says that I think people don't quite get. And, uh, you know, and it's to prioritize by economic and strategic value. Man, mm-hmm. like when you one that forces you to slow down 
and not just run through a list of tasks because, uh, you know, we did an episode the other day on, on creativity hour, which, you know, at the, this point people have heard it, but we we're like, there's this huge difference between productivity and effectiveness and people confuse them. And mm-hmm. it's like productivity is not about, you know, productivity is all about inputs. Effectiveness is all about output. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the, a lot of what Scott's building on there, and by the way, my, my wife Britt worked with Scott building Behance for okay. a while. Um, so, so we go back, but the, the thing that is interesting about that model is it almost speaks to the Eisenhower matrix of what is urgent, what is important and, and how do you then characterize what to do with it? Mm-hmm. And, and what is interesting is in the systems that I work in and, and, and try to coach, the only box that doesn't exist is that delegate box where you can just make somebody else do something that you have deemed not important and not urgent. Um, actually, you know, nobody in our organizations has that box ideally. And we're all collectively deciding that the things that are not important and not urgent just don't have to happen. And the things that are urgent or important, they happen. And Mm -hmm. so I think it's a collaborative and collective ideal to, to sort of have that matrix as a system or as a team rather than as an individual. Yeah. Well, so, you know, I think the other uh, frustration I think I really faced with, with the world of, of corporate America, especially as somebody who has ADD was that eight hours in one place just seemed wildly inefficient. I was like, do I really need to be here? I don't do a damn thing for the last two hours. I just pretend to look busy. And there's something you said in our previous conversation that I want to revisit and talk about in the context of the eight hour workday. Take a listen. Not only did we inherit the management class and the thinkers and doers from Taylor and Ford and others at the turn of the century, but we also inherited this idea that the way we do the work gets standardized into a certain set of processes, and those processes reflect that bureaucracy. And having 15 people approve something and having processes that don't allow you to take action or test and learn, et cetera, I've worked with many clients where there are people in the organization working on product who are not allowed to talk to customers, <laughs> things like that, which are just bonkers. And so essentially what it means is that the workflow that we have is broken. All right. I don't remember. So when did uh, Brave New Work come out? It was probably, what, 2018 when you and I last spoke? Uh, 2019. 2019. Yeah, February of okay. 2019. It's three years later. Uh <laughs> Have you seen this change? I mean, yeah, the pandemic got us out of having to be at an office. And I can tell you this in my own life. It, it, you know, when you first start doing your own thing, it's actually hard, even though you're free to spend your time however you want, to break the structure of working eight hours a day because you're so conditioned to work yes. in that nine to five window that even when you do your own thing and you no longer have a nine to five, you still work nine to five. And, you know, We've got this, you know, operating system for work that's clearly antiquated and broken. You know, how in the world do you get rid of an eight hour workday when it's such an institution? Yeah. You know, interestingly, I've seen more movement on this than I expected in the last three years. So there have been some pretty interesting groups of organizations that have agreed to experiment with the four day work week, for example, or more flexible hours. I think I think the pandemic has shocked the system a little bit in the sense that people were able to in in some, not all, but in, in many organizations, they were able to kind of rewire their workday a little bit to be able to interact with family and deal with kids at home and education and things like that. So it just kind of broke loose a little bit of what maybe was was calcified there. 
And and I think that the data is suggesting, and, and we've known this for a long time, but the data is suggesting that what you felt intuitively is accurate, which is we actually can't do eight hours of deep, productive work every day as people. Our brains are not built for that, or we certainly can't do it in one sitting. Um, and so actually what we need to do is figure out how to optimize for the kind of work that we're doing. And those expectations that go along with that about what we're paying for and what we're getting are what are being challenged and disrupted. And in many, many, many organizations, the belief with leadership still looks something like, I'm paying you for time, and so I want to see my time. And the more time we spend, the better we'll do. Mm -hmm. And actually, if you talk to any entrepreneur worth their salt, they'll be like, "Mm, I'm paying for outcomes and, and skills and effort maybe a little bit but mostly i'm paying for outcomes i want i want something to happen as a result yeah, of you like, working i don't give here. a shit how much time it yeah. takes you if you do this you know i was like i don't care if you're out all night doing cocaine and you know totally. getting wasted if you get me what i need that's your business not mine i'm like not exactly, that i would hire yeah. somebody who's a cocaine addict but you know i mean i'm concerned about this person but i but i do think yeah it it boils down to what you can do for what value And so we've been talking a lot about this at the ready lately, actually, about the difference between paying for time versus paying for outcomes versus paying for what we're calling like reputation or Mm -hmm. NPS. Like, how does everybody feel about Jim? Yeah. And and what does that mean in terms of how well he's doing and in the roles that he's in? Yeah. And so I think I, I think every organization needs to have that conversation, which is like, let's stop for five minutes and talk. What are we paying each other for? What, what does it mean to, to work here and to show up? And if we don't have clarity about that, it can create a lot of that confusion mm-hmm. and a lot of insecurity, I think, in leaders who are like, since I don't really know what to measure and I don't really know what we care about and I don't have clarity about process or outcomes, I guess I'm just going to try to Zoom monitor everybody and just beat them into submission by making them be on camera eight hours a day. So I'm not afraid that they're playing with their pets or something. No. Well, um, it, and it's totally broken. Well, it's funny you say that because it, it makes me think of it some sort of in perspective of, you know, the entrepreneur freelancer who is notorious for thinking about how they charge for their services based on time. Like even yes. thinking about, you know, I, I, I do consulting for people, you know, and building knowledge management systems. And I was like, you know what? I mean, it's not the time. I mean, I could do some of this stuff in 30 minutes. It's the outcome you're looking for. And it makes yep. me just think it's like, oh, I should charge based on value and I should charge way more. Like I I, Absolutely. I had a friend who emailed me because I was looking at hiring him to help me with something. And he sent me his price. And my first instinct was like, shit, I don't charge enough for the things that I do. <laughs> I'm sure many of your listeners have heard the the story of, you know, the Picasso drawing and it's it's yeah. going to be 10 grand or whatever. And the guy's like, what? It took 60 seconds. He's like, no, it took 30 years. Yeah, I think that I think that is so true in a lot of these fields, especially complex fields, right, where you build mastery and intuition over many, many, many patterns and repetitions. And you're like, look, I can come in and I can break this down for you in in really short order because I've done so many of these. Yeah. Um, and, and that is, that's what you're paying for. You're paying for that practice, uh, in the same way that you'd pay a lot. If you were like, Hey, yo, yo, ma, come play a cello solo at my daughter's wedding. It's five minutes. Guess how much it's going to cost a fucking fortune. I only know this. Yeah, And it should, because the dude has played so much cello. Well, I mean, yeah, I don't know if you know who the Ambani's are. They're Indian billionaires who you'll never believe who they hired as the entertainment, uh, unless you, you happen to be up on this for their daughter's wedding. Oh God, please tell me. Take a wild guess. I Stevie Wonder. Not even close. Um, Think even more famous. (laughs) Michael Jackson. Beyonce. 
Beyonce, perfect. Yeah. yeah. You, I mean, Beyonce herself is a billionaire. Yeah, yeah, I, I love it. Yeah, I love yeah. It. so we're paying. What's I, that check got to be? Oh, a lot. But it just, yeah. you know, it, it just makes me think it's like, wow, we really don't charge enough. Like, I, I had a, uh, a, you know, podcast listener who, you know, sent me a message on Facebook. She's like, hey, can I ask you, you know, some questions about podcasting? I've had friends from college who were like, hey, you know, would you like to make a new friend? I was like, listen, I don't even need any new friends. And if I said yes to requests like this, I'd still be living at my parents' broke as shit. I'm like, mm-hmm. and this, this one, you know, friend was like, I thought you would do this for free because we're Indian. I was like, that's precisely why I won't do it for free because we're both <laughs> exactly. Indian. Exactly. What are you talking about? Yeah. You, you of all amazing. people should know that. <laughs> you know? Yeah. I just think we hide behind effort sometimes where you, and, and frankly, I think it has connections back to school. This episode is quite networked. Um, but, but in school, a lot of it is like showing up, putting in the hours, putting in the effort. That's what tends to be rewarded. And it's rare that just the test score is all that counts for the grade. Mm-hmm. But in actuality, in life, it, it's just the test score. I mean, we don't do tests, but the test is, can you get the outcome? Yeah. Um, but I think a lot of people who aren't so sure they can deliver the outcome actually, you know, enjoy hiding behind the hours, right? Mm-hmm. I'm putting in the hours, I'm doing my best, and that should be enough. And the reality is, it's, you know, that's a that's a pleasant fiction that we all operate under. But in the end of the day, unless the job is about being somewhere for a certain amount of time, like a toll booth collector or something, um, the job's actually about an outcome. And and the time you're spending is really about building your mastery. It's not about the value to the organization at all. Yeah. Wow. I feel like I could talk to you about this all day. Um <laughs> Well, I have enjoyed this conversation so much. I know we've gotten in a bunch of different directions. Uh, So I want to finish with my final question. Um, What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? Well, I think in some ways connected to everything we've talked about, it is about going a different way. There's so much status quo behavior and mimicry in the world that I think I, I do believe. And I know you talk about this a lot on the show, but I do believe being unmistakable is just about zigging and zagging right it's doing doing something different and thinking for yourself and so much of org design as i've talked about in the book and the previous interview is like let's just do it the way everybody else does it because that must be the right way when the actuality is 80 percent of our work practices are bullshit born on factory floors don't add up to anything don't don't add to the you know human flourishing and the eudaimonia of everything so yeah just think for yourself stop Stop doing what everybody else does and, and do what you feel in your gut is right. Amazing. Uh, well, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to join us and share your insights and stories and wisdom with our listeners. Where can people find out more about you, your work, and everything you're up to? Yeah, well, I'm on Twitter at Aaron Dignan and theready.com and murmur.com, M-U-R-M-U-R.com are good places to, to go have a look. Amazing. And for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that. Worried you'll need to babysit your robot vacuum? Think again. Meet Eufy X10 Pro Omni Robot Vacuum with AI-powered navigation to recognize and avoid over 100 objects. It's the winner of five Best of CES awards. And Digital Trends says it boasts almost all the same features as robot vacuums that cost twice as much. Want to know more? Go to eufy.com. That's E-U-F-Y dot And discover X10 Pro Omni, the best-in-class all-in-one robot vacuum for only $799. Shopify helps you sell at every stage of your business. Like that, let's put it online and see what happens stage. And the site is live. That we opened a store and need a fast checkout stage. Thanks, you're all set. That count it up and ship it around the globe stage. This one's going to Thailand. And that... 
wait, did we just hit a million orders stage? Whatever your stage, businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for your $1 a month trial at shopify.com slash listen. Hello, listener. Is it me you're looking for? As brands, we're always wanting to make a connection to find the person you can rely on, the one that's there every week, month, or year, and always has your back when you need them the most. It's a little like matchmaking, don't you think? With ACAST podcast ads, you can filter for your exact dream audience so you can find the ideal customer for your business. The Romeo to your Juliet, the Rachel to your Ross, the Bert to your Ernie, and avoid those red flags and time wasters. Your ads can communicate with them in the most intimate way possible. A one-on-one conversation, a chance meeting in the gym, or a coffee shop. So go on, give it a try. With over hundreds of thousands of listens a month, your person is probably here. Get closer to your audience. Make podcast ads with Acast. Head to go.acast.com to get started. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.